Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. I created a file on my computer called Molly Episode Dot Duck and recorded the time and place of each crime. And on the front of him, he had this big sign that said, Rats have rights too. She's very perceptive. I tell people all the time the best way to understand working with Dolly is imagine you're walking around tied to an 8,000 pound lie detector and, and you've got it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler, and today on the podcast, Animalia. Three stories about people's relationships with the animals in their lives. I am here solo this week. Uh, Jessica will be back soon. She has been very busy with back to school in her, quote, real job other than the stoop. And so um, she has left me alone with all the animals to to do this uh, episode. So this first story was one of the earliest stories I think we ever featured on the stoop. I mean, this is going back to like 2007. Um, and... It's a crazy and funny and um, warm and poignant story, so take a listen. Well, as you all should know by now, the theme of tonight's show is living with somebody, and my story really starts with the fact that about three years ago, I wasn't living with anybody and hadn't for about a decade, so I thought, well, it's time to get a pet. And I wanted a dog, but I'm really not home enough to take care of a dog, so I thought, well, I'll get a cat. And then it hit me. Mother of God, I'm single and I'm nearly 40 and I'm getting a cat. (laughs) So I called a friend of mine who's in a similar situation and she said, oh, don't worry about it. She said, you know, you're really only a cat lady stereotype if you get multiple cats. (laughs) So I said, okay, this made sense to me. So I headed off to the SPCA with a friend of mine who's a gay guy because I didn't want to be a stereotype. And that's... (laughs) And that's when I first saw Molly. She was a sad little tortoiseshell lying in her litter box. She was underweight and had a little crossed eye, and she just looked like she needed me. So I took her home. And like the beginning of most relationships, it was great at first. All she wanted to do was lie on my lap and be petted, and that's really all I wanted in a cat. Well then, after about four weeks, the honeymoon ended. I started coming home from work and noticing that the litter box was empty, there was an odor in the room, and there were big yellow spots all over the guest bed. So I flipped out. I raced to the vet. I was, like, frantic for an explanation. And luckily, my vet had one. She was like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, usually this is caused by a urinary tract infection. That's usually what makes cats go outside the box. So she ran a test, and it came back positive. And I was like, yes, you know, give her a pill, and this is going to make it go away. So I did give her a pill, and it did go away. But then I don't need to tell you that about three days after she gets a clean bill of health, she just starts expanding her targets. Now instead of going on the guest bed, she's also going on piles of laundry, she doesn't care if they're dirty or clean, and stacks of newspaper. I'd be driving my car, smell that smell, and realize that Molly had managed to nail my pant leg before I put the pants on. <laughs> Maybe I'd let pieces of the Sunday paper fall to the floor and I'd find them drenched later. And God forbid that I should forget to close that guest bedroom door or she'd strike. So I go back to the vet. This time the vet explains to me The cats often stop using the box because of stress, and the stress is usually caused by a change in their environment. 
I learned that it's pretty easy to rock a cat's world, and I had the distinct impression that it was all my fault. Dr. Thompson got out her checklist of violations. Have you moved the litter box? No. Changed brands of kitty litter? No. Brought a new pet into the home? No. Had a baby? No. <laughs> so finally, you know, during this interrogation, I realized something. I said, apparently, Molly is only stressed out when she's standing over newspaper or fabric. Because she, she didn't go anywhere else. Well, Dr. Thompson failed to really appreciate, appreciate that sarcastic comment. She took me seriously. She was like, well, clearly, it's a, you know, it could be a tactile issue. You know, she likes the feeling of fabric and paper better than kitty litter. She was serious. She was like, so, so tell you what. She goes, why don't you buy some adult diapers and, and spread them around the floor? And then if she goes in the diaper instead of your laundry, you know, then you'll know that that's the problem. Well, I just thought that was a great idea. And then she said, she said, I have one last, you know, if nothing else works as a last resort, we can put her on an antidepressant like Prozac. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. She said, lots of people are doing this now. She said, to stop behavioral problems. She explained to me that animals are like people. They're unhappy when they're, un when they're under stress, but they're not like people. You know, they, they can't talk, so they act out through bad behavior. Alleviate the stress with a pill, and you can stop the behavior. Well, there was a certain logic to that, but all I could really think was, you know, there are 45 million people living without health insurance in this country, and this chick wants to put my cat on an antidepressant. <laughs> the other thing was, you know... It was bad, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, she was not going on the furniture or rug. She was limit limiting it to things that I could throw away or wash. And, you know, so what if, the, what if the Prozac didn't work? Then I'd have exhausted my last resort, and I'd have to consider having her put to sleep, and I couldn't bear that. So that's when I became Molly's psychotherapist. I was, I was determined to find the source of the problem. What was she so upset about? I mean, had she been abused? Was she lonely? So... <laughs> I started conducting my own research. I googled felines plus urination and cats plus pee plus problems. <laughs> I did. I stood in the pet aisle of Barnes & Noble reading books about cats. I also, during this process, I even wrote a paper for a science writing class about the use of um, human psychiatric drugs in animals. And when I was doing the research for that, I interviewed one vet, one vet in Annapolis who told me <laughs> that at her practice, they'd even treated some reptiles. <laughs> she recalled one iguana in particular. He was having some sort of anxiety problem. <laughs> but those were mostly sexual issues, she said to me. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't know if the iguana couldn't get it up or what the deal was. But I was just thanking God it wasn't my problem. But the thing was, I didn't know what my problem was. I mean, I just couldn't figure it out. So the only thing I knew to do was to try everything that had been suggested to me. I confined Molly to one room with a litter box to retrain her to use it. I created a file on my computer called Molly Episode Duck and recorded the time and place of each crime. I bought two more litter boxes so that I'd have one for every floor of my house, and I placed a Depends next to each. <laughs> I tried my own version of talk therapy. I told Molly she was beautiful and that I loved her, because she was, <laughs> because she was and I did. 
And I praised her every time she used the litter box, even though everybody told me cats don't respond to praise. I figured it couldn't hurt. It didn't help either. Um, She continued to think outside the box. And Molly episode dot doc showed no pattern. She might give me three weeks off and then go outside the box three times in one day. But between episodes, life with her was really pretty sweet, and that really was most of the time. And she still was not going on the furniture or rugs, so I lived with it. And this went on for months. But then one day, about a year after her initial diagnosis, which, by the way, was inappropriate urination, um, (laughs) that's on file at Cat Hospital at Towson. Um, I came home from Target, dropped my packages on the floor, and sat down on my new sofa in a puddle. She'd finally gone on something I couldn't wash or throw away. And suddenly I didn't care what Molly's problem was anymore. I was tired of stepping on adult diapers, and I was terminating her psychotherapy. And the generic version of Prozac was only $16 a month. I crushed up the first Prozac pill and stirred it into her fancy feast on September 1st, 2004, and she has not missed the litter box since. (laughs) Yeah, you think you're happy. (laughs) Um, I still can't believe it, and I've realized I really do have one more option if the Prozac quits working. I can take it myself. That way... I almost took one of her Valium tonight. She gets that for when she goes to the vet. Um, That way, the next time I sit down in her pool pool of her urine, I figure I won't mind. People ask me if the Prozac has made her any happier. Um, I can't really tell, but I can tell you that she sure is happy to take it. Because the minute she hears me open that prescription bottle, she knows it's time for her fancy feast, and she comes running. Um, I think of her as my little junkie. So, um, the last time I went to the vet, I asked the vet if I could get a liquid version of Prozac. And a few days later, the vet's office left a message on my answering machine. The vet's assistant said, the liquid flavor that Prozac comes in for humans is licorice, and so that probably wouldn't work for cats. But we could get it in a cat-acceptable flavor. Here's what we have. Bacon, beef, cheese, chicken, fish, liver, lamb, or tuna. Call us back with the flavor Molly would like. I chose the chicken. Thanks. I love Christie's story about the cat on Prozac, which at this point probably is not as um, surprising as it was back then. I remember first hearing about it and being dumbfounded and, you know, Maybe now it's just like, of course, wait, your cat isn't on Prozac? What's wrong with you? I don't have a cat, by the way. I don't even like cats, but I still like people who like cats. Our next storyteller is, boy, does he have an unforgettable Baltimore accent. Chuck Oaklick is his name. And um, he was somebody that I read about in the newspaper. I believe it was the Baltimore City paper, RIP. And um, tracked him down, which was not that easy. Um, And then once I tracked him down, trying to explain what the stoop was and what I was inviting him to do was hilarious. But um, we made it work, and he shared this great story. Take a listen. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to tell you a true story about the birth of Baltimore urban fishing, a.k.a. rat fishing. <laughs> it started back early 1993 when a friend of mine, Mike DeLuca, owner of the Yellow Rose Saloon, which was located about two blocks west of the old Belnord movie on Fayette Street, asked me what could be done to bring in some more customers as things were kind of slow. So I thought, and I remember reading just the other week about a story in the Baltimore Guide about the rat infestation problem in Baltimore City. So it kind of brought me back to a time in my youth when some of my friends and me used to go over to the alleys in Canton and Hollandtown. We'd take our rod with a hook we put a piece of bacon on it with some peanut butter. We'd throw it out in the alley, and we'd roll it in, roll it in, and another guy would stand there with a rat bat, and when he got close enough, kaboom! <laughs> so, I said to Mike, well, Mike, why don't we have a rat fishing contest? A tournament. He said, how would we run that? I said, well, just like a bass fishing tournament. We'll have rules, regulations, you know, like we can have single hooks, treble hooks, no trout lines, no hand lines. Okay? We could even sell rat fishing license. And whatever we collected, we could donate to a local charity. So, on December the 3rd, 1993, the first annual Yellow Rose Rat Fishing Contest was started. That year, or that time for that tournament, there was about 25 contestants. We caught a bunch of rats. We gave trophies for first, second, third place. And then all of a sudden, I got a call from Steve Rouse, Rouse and Company. Would I be willing to come on his show and talk about it on the radio? I said, sure. So we went down. Then all of a sudden, the infamous Greco and Moe from 98 Rock. They called me too. So I went on there. But it was Steve Rouse, who had a friend of his who worked for Associated Press. He come down, he did a story, he took pictures, and all of a sudden, there we were in USA Today. <laughs> all around the world now. Okay. Now, I've got calls from as far away as Johannesburg, South Africa, <laughs> Guam, Australia, New Zealand, Alaska, all wanting to know what this rat fishing contest was all about. One of the stories was the mayor at that time, Mayor Smoke. He called me. He said, Chuck, what are you doing? <laughs> he said, don't you understand? We're trying to bring people into the inner harbor and the city, and you're running a rat fishing contest? <clears throat> I said, <clears throat> I said, Mayor, do you realize just the other day the tour center down the inner harbor called me to want to know where the Yellow Rose Saloon was? <laughs> And I asked them, why? And they said, 
Well, out of the 10 most wanted places that tourists come to Baltimore City want to visit, you're number eight on the list. But I'll tell you what, you get rid of the rats, I won't have no more tournament. He hung up on me. Then there was a stay. Okay, this van parked across the street, and these young people, maybe in their early 20s, late teens, they got out with brooms, they got out with fatigues on, they're sweeping up all over the place. I said, finally, the city has taken notice. They're cleaning up. But then there was this pile of white stuff on the ground. I didn't know what it was. And this guy walked over, and he starts getting into it. And he stands up. And all of a sudden, there's this six-foot white rat. <laughs> I said, oh, this is neat. They brought their own rat with them. But then he turned around. And on the front of him, he had this big sign that said, rats have rights too. Peter. <laughs> uh, so, a friend of mine in the bar, Nick Dessel, says to me, all right, Chuck, what are you going to do now? They got the animal rights activists after you. I said, well, desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> With that, I walked to the back of the bar, okay, picked up my fishing rod, walked across the street. I took my hook and I dangled it in front of his face and I said, what kind of food do you like? He said, what? I said, what's your favorite food? He said, why? I said, because I'm going to catch me a real big one tonight. Kaploop. <laughs> then this young lady from PETA come up to me. And she said, Chuck, don't you realize that a rat is just a little dog? And I said to her, honey, I don't know what school you went to <laughs> or if you even graduated. But when I went to school, they taught me a rat was a rodent. But for the sake of argument, I'll concede that a rat is just a little dog. If you do one thing for me, she said, what's that? I said, you come back here at 12 o'clock tonight, and I'm going to take you for a walk through the dog pound. And you pick out any little doggy you want and take it home. Thank you very much. So before we get to our final story on our podcast today, we're going to take a quick break. Support for WYPR's podcasts comes from Catholic Charities. Celebrating its centennial in 2023, Catholic Charities is the largest private provider of social services in Maryland. Learn more about this movement to change lives at cc-md.org. Okay, our final story today on our Animalia episode is a really lovely one. Um, and it comes from Mike McClure, who is an elephant trainer at the Maryland Zoo in Baltimore. 
Just take a listen. So I've worked with a lot of species in my career, and uh, the thing that's always been most fascinating for me is watching the development of family units in those species and how each animal goes about it. Uh, when I started with elephants, they quickly became the most interesting species for me out of everything I've ever been around. And when I started at the zoo with them about 13 years ago, we only had two elephants. We had two females. Uh, we had Dolly and we had Anna. Anna is a very straightforward animal. There's not a lot of depth. A lot of people would be mad at me for saying that about her, but it's true. Um, Anna only likes three things. Anna likes to sleep, to eat, and to play, uh, with occasional walking in between. Um, so with Dolly, though, this is really the most amazing animal I have ever had the privilege of working with and being around. Uh, Dolly is incredibly intelligent. She's very emotional. She forms strong bonds to everything. Uh, and she's very perceptive. I tell people all the time, the best way to understand working with Dolly is imagine you're walking around tied to an 8,000-pound lie detector, and, and you've got it. Um, you really can't sneak anything by her. She's really quite, quite incredible. But with that level of intelligence and perception comes a really high degree of nervousness as well. So you have to be careful with her and, and go slow. So having two elephants is not a herd, and it's certainly not a family unit. So one of the first things I tried to do was to look into breeding the two elephants so that they could have their own babies and make their own family uh, without a male, which is a bit of a problem. Uh, we had to find another way to do it, and we looked at artificial insemination. Now, artificial insemination with elephants is exactly like it is in humans. It's expensive, it's difficult, and it's not the funnest thing to do for the doctor. Um, <laughs> Each artificial insemination attempt, yes, I got to be the doctor for the elephants, not fun. Uh, each artificial insemination attempt was about $15,000. So we had to be very careful about it because we had a limited pool of money. I looked at both elephants and who we should make this attempt with. Anna's reproductive cycle was very irregular, so not a good idea to put all your eggs in that particular basket. Uh, <laughs> Dolly was like clockwork, so Dolly was the, the winning candidate. Now, unfortunately, everyone who had ever worked with Dolly before told me the same thing. She is too nervous. She's too much of a freak. She will not sit still. If she has a baby, she's very likely to reject it, and she's very likely to hurt it by accident. I didn't buy it. Um, I had gotten to know Dolly, and I saw things in her that I thought were really incredible, and I thought she deserved a chance to be a mother. Uh, three artificial insemination attempts later, and I still did not have a pregnant dolly. And we were out of money and running out of time. So we were looking at what our next steps were. And I went out and found two other elephants to bring into the herd and to try and create a family that way. Uh, the first one I found was Tuffy, an adult male elephant. Uh, adult males do not live with the females uh, when they grow up. They're solitary, so they're not really part of the family unit. Um, they come in and contribute the one important part, and then they go away and become deadbeat dads. Um, so Tuffy's a whole other story for another time. Uh, the female that we found, though, was really interesting. Her name is Felix. Um, yes, it is a female. Uh, Felix was a proven mother. She had already had a calf and had been really successful raising him. And she's a little bit of a weird elephant, but I thought she would fit well with our group, so we brought her in. And the bonus of bringing Felix in is that Felix came in pregnant. So a few months after Felix arrived, uh, she gave birth to Samson. Uh, the funny part about Samson is 
obviously, a little boy with a male name, uh, but he was supposed to be a girl. All of the hormone assays and all of the science said that it was going to be a girl, and he came out with one very specific part that completely negated that. Uh, so we were a little bit surprised at that because a female would actually stay with the herd for her whole life, whereas, like I said, a male will end up being by himself. Uh, but you know what? Uh, trunk, two ears, two eyes. We were happy. You know, it was a baby elephant. So at that point, we started looking at laying the groundwork for developing the family for these elephants um, and building the relationships. The first relationship we looked at closely was obviously Samson and Felix, the mother and the calf. Uh, Felix proved, luckily, to be a great mom like we expected. Uh, she's really only there for two things with Samson, though. She provides food and protection. Otherwise, she's a very detached and fairly cold mom. Uh, but she's very reliable in those two aspects. Uh, as a matter of fact, right now, it, he's about three years old, and she's trying to wean him. She doesn't want him nursing anymore. Um, for obvious reasons, he's getting pretty big. He's about 3,000 pounds. You don't really want that attached to you. Um, and he's got tusks. Think about it. Um, so she's taking a really active role right now to sort of deter him from nursing. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen those kids' toys called a bolo bat, a little uh, ball on a rubber string attached to a paddle that you sort of do this with, and it bounces off numerous times. Well, Felix has perfected that technique using uh, Samson's trunk. Uh, when she doesn't want him to nurse anymore, she puts his trunk in her mouth. She winds up, pops him in the side of the head. He bounces off like a rubber ball. She pulls him back in. She pops him again. Um, it's really kind of funny to watch, actually. Uh, I think her current record for consecutive successful pops is three in a row. Um, and about that time, he kind of clues in and goes, oh, mom doesn't want me to drink. I think I'll go over here. Um, so once we had that whole relationship with them established and figured out, uh, the next step was really to look at how Felix integrated with the other two girls. Uh, right away with Anna, Felix identified with her quickly and sort of developed a sisterly kind of relationship. Uh, Felix always looked at Anna kind of like a big sister and, you know, kind of was always following around going, what are you eating? What are we doing now? Where are we going? Why are you digging in the dirt? What are you doing with that tree? That kind of stuff. Um, and she's just always in Anna's face. And Anna is a very tolerant elephant, thankfully. So their relationship is great. Uh, the interesting relationship for Felix that I got to see was the development of her uh, attraction to Dolly. Dolly and Felix hit it off very well. But Felix, I think, saw a lot of the same things in Dolly that I saw um, for so many years. Felix is very respectful of Dolly. She keeps her distance, but she wants to be around her. She's very drawn to Dolly uh, and likes to spend time around her. So the next relationship that we looked at was obviously Samson with the bigger girls. And this was the one that made me nervous. I mean, he's a little elephant. Um, you know, at the time, he was only a couple hundred pounds, and they're 8,000 pounds each. Uh, but really quickly, he identified Anna as a playmate, which was great. Uh, this was very vindicating for me because for a lot of years I knew if Anna had something to play with other than uh, humans, she would do really well with it. And right off the bat, Samson just started headbutting her and pushing on her, and she took it and plays right back with him. So that was fantastic, especially because for many years Anna has solicited Dolly for play behaviors, and Dolly is what we affectionately refer to as the fun police. Um, <laughs> when Dolly's around, there is no fun. It is not to be tolerated. Um, so Anna had that void in her life filled very easily. 
Now, for me, again, I'm sure you can tell I'm a little bit biased towards Dolly, but the interesting relationship was how Samson took to Dolly. Uh, he, right off the bat, was just like his mother, very respectful of her, very cautious. But he sort of took on like a grandmother uh, kind of relationship with her where he would come to her for instruction. Mom wasn't giving it, so he went to get it from Dolly. And Dolly spent a lot of time teaching this little guy. It was amazing to watch. Um, this elephant, who everyone told me would very likely harm a calf by accident, would be too nervous for these little things. She took him under her wing, and, and being around the calf was like watching a fish in water. She was fantastic with him. Uh, now, the really funny thing is, not only did she teach him how to be an elephant, all the good behaviors like mud bathing and debarking trees, uh, but she taught him all of the things that for 13 years I have been trying to teach her not to do. Um, <laughs> For instance, Dolly taught him how to find and excavate clay. Um, doesn't sound too bad, but elephants eat clay. It gives them a bellyache. Dolly is the queen of this. Um, and she would actually take him and lead him to the spots, find it, start scratching at the spot. She'd wait, look at him. He'd go, oh. scratch a little bit, and then she would find a piece, pop it in her mouth. He'd find a piece, pop it in his mouth. And I'm watching all this going, good Lord, give me a break. But the really funny thing for me to see was as soon as Dolly would notice this little guy was in the, the baby elephant zone and he was really focused on the clay, she would leave. And she'd back right up to me, get next to me, look over at him, and it was almost as if she was saying, hey, look what the boy's doing. <laughs> and then I'd have to go stop him. So all in one shot, Dolly obtained a student, a grandson, and a scapegoat. Um, <laughs> which was something really important for her. So now that we had all of these individual relationships formed, uh, I spent a lot of time like a nervous parent, sort of watching them all on the playground, making sure that that was going on. And I really realized with one event that I was sort of not seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, there was one day where I'm watching all of the elephants interact in the yard. It's a nice hot summer day. And suddenly, Samson decides, I'm going in the pool. He'd never been in the pool. He didn't know how to swim. He'd never done it. But in that moment, dove right in, started splashing around like a little nut and having a great time. Anna, the playmate, suddenly tuned in and said, oh, my God, someone else is in the pool finally. And she went in right behind him. Um, so he and Anna are in the pool, splashing around like nuts, having a good time. And then sure enough, here comes Felix right into the pool behind him. All three are now in the pool and I'm just utterly amazed. I'm like, wow, they're that comfortable to, to interact in the pool in such close proximity. That's great. Again, not seeing the forest for the trees. Um, but what happened next was what really made the connection for me uh, that drove it all home. I was watching Dolly and her reaction to all of this. And like I said, Dolly's not fun. She doesn't do the pool. But Dolly was scanning the yard. She's looking at everything in the yard and taking it, it all in and sort of uh, assessing it all. Then she walked to the edge of the pool. When she's at the edge of the pool, she scanned and looked at all the elephants in the pool having a great time. And then what she did really made a connection for me. Dolly went to the entrance of the pool. She turned around, put her rear end to the other elephants, and stood guard over her clan. I was amazed. I looked at this, and I was just like, oh, my God. 13 years of blood, sweat, and tears, all of this work we have an adopted herd of elephants. But the thing that was really incredible for me at that moment uh, was not so much that, as incredible as that is, 
it kind of made me realize why I had this connection to them. I myself am from an adopted herd. Uh, my brother and I were both adopted by our parents, brought into a very loving uh, family, and that family was built on relationships and bonding and events and growing together and learning one another. And for me to see that happen in the elephant herd that I'd worked with for so long and to relate it to my own personal experience, it was absolutely one of the greatest moments of my life. Three stories about people's relationship with animals that really, really run the gamut from um, medicating to killing to learning from. So uh, we hope you enjoyed those today. And we want to let you know that uh, we have a storytelling show coming up on Thursday, October 12th at the American Visionary Art Museum. You can find out about that at stoopstorytelling.com, along with stories and information about all the other things that the stoop is into. We want to thank you for listening, and thank you to Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast. We will be back soon with more stories from the stoop.